critical thinking is how do I look at something from all sides okay, and come up with my thoughts about what that, you know, what I want to conclude about that judgment, mm-hmm. however, is that I make a decision about a person's worth based on what they have come up with as their thought. Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to the sound of my voice. Thank you so much for tuning in to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. And as every week you hear from fantastic guests who have had the opportunity to live a life in which they are now blessed with giving lessons back to other individuals. We talk candidly and we talk openly about subjects on everything from how to become a leader, what it means to be a leader, how to be a better leader, how to influence, how to hold your own space in tough situations and create safe spaces if you're an executive who needs to have innovation, inclusion, and more profit. My guest today is is someone who I've just gently fallen in love with because she, (laughs) she has mastered living a really good life where most, you know, she has over uh, this time has taken the opportunity to ask herself, what does it mean to live a good life? And she is working hard to construct that. And I have to say, it's a non-traditional life. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But the other thing is, is that my guest is La Rochelle Brim Atkins, and she is the founder and principal consultant at Brim Donahue and Associates. She has more than 30 years experience working in organizational development and training in both the public, private, and non-profit sectors. Since her early days, she's designed customized, comprehensive training and education programs that focus on leadership, management, cultural competence, which we're going to dig into that because, you know, everybody talks about that, but do we really know what that means? Diversity and social change. She's particularly effective at creating safe spaces to work one-on-one with executives, leaders, and their staff to resolve interpersonal issues and enhance personal work performance. She helps organizations become culturally responsive, actively reflecting their stated goals and achieve their desired vision. She's worked in 17 countries. And in addition, she has also worked for large organizations such as Deloitte & Touche, AirTouch, Verizon, Simpson Paper, Microsoft, Washington Mutual Bank, IBM, the list goes on. She's an accomplished woman and she has a bachelor's of English from the University of Texas in Austin, a master's of uh, arts degree in urban education from State University in New York, and an MA in spiritual psychology from the University of Santa Santa Monica. She's got all kinds of certifications and degrees. She's worked in multiple continents from Africa to Europe to America. 
she just goes on and on and on. And all along, she has got a smile on her face. She just lives life. In, and one of the things that you will all love is, is in this post-COVID world, even before that, she learned how to take her stuff on the road. And so for the last five years, three out of the three or four months out of the year, she lives in Mexico, smiling and providing services. And warm. <laughs> and warm. <laughs> Provided much lead, needed leadership examples and helping leaders to not just understand the principles of a safe space, but to create it for themselves. Okay, that's all the technical stuff. Just know she's a fabulous woman and y'all to know her. Thank you, thank you. Good day, how are you, ma'am? I am so good. I just, I keep looking, thinking, how did I deserve this life? And I tell people whether I deserve it or not, I'm taking it. All right, Absolutely. all right, all right, all right. For those of you, that, as this is a podcast, you really can't see her. So she is a black woman sitting in what looks like a beautiful uh, multicolored blue. Is that a dress or just a shirt? A shirt. Uh-huh. And she's got a matching hat, glasses to die for, and beautiful red lipstick on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. I'm just uh, sitting here in San Pancho, Nayarit, Mexico. Look at that. Look at that. So. No. Globalism, if you didn't think it was here, it is here and it is it's going here. to, is that right? Alive and living color. And I'm happy to be part of it. It's, it's fabulous. So, you know, I, every, I, I get to know you. And so tell us a little something about you in particular, what are the things that, you know, not from the bio, because clearly you have accomplished all the learning that one needs. Tell us about your fun self and how do you integrate your you know, all these years of study and work and honing your craft, you know, we talked about that a little bit with a fabulous life. Yeah. You know, I don't see them as uh, separate. I don't see the work and the play and the who I am as separate. It's just one package. And I've, I've tried to live my life that way. So one of the things that I want to do is to live and speak and work from my heart and create joy as I do that. And so years ago, I participated in a leadership development intensive, and we had to create our purpose statement. And mine was creating and grabbing joy. I changed the world. Mm. Some people say, well, you can revise your life purpose statement. I've never felt a need to revise it because right. I, I want to bring joy. And the work that I do is not always joyful, but I try to get people to a space where they feel joyful if they work to it there. Mm. So I, you know, I have had my consulting practice since 1988. Prior to that, I was at the University of Washington for 15 years as director of training and development. And then I left the university to see if life existed outside the university because I had been there for 15 years. And so what I tried to do was to create a practice where I could help people see the world with more open hearts and minds and spirit. And that's exactly what I've managed to do. And so it wouldn't make sense for me to help other people do that, live from a place of joy, of peace, of contentment, openness, if I were not doing that in my own life. So that's, that's, that's where I've come from that. Now, my grandfather used to say all the time, my grandfather, my grandparents were founders of the 
African-American school. We were Negroes back then <laughs> in my county in Texas. So they founded the school. And my grandfather would say all the time, if you love God, you feed his sheep. If you love God, you feed his lambs. I mean, he would say that all the time. And so I grew up with this sense that I have an obligation to other people. Mm-hmm. And that obligation is to make them safer in the mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. to make a place that is safe for all people. Mm-hmm. And that has put me in some interesting places. Yeah. Some challenging places, but some very rewarding places as well. So that's kind of the way I have framed my life. Mm -hmm. I will admit that I have not always taken time for myself. I was a single parent for years. I left a good job. (laughs) Air quotes. (laughs) Air quotes, yeah. And at the university to strike out on my own as a consultant. And that was a little scary because I had two young children. But if I'm going to tell people to take risks, then I have to take risks. Yeah. If I'm going to encourage people to step out on faith, I have to step out on faith and Mm -hmm. believe that I'm confident enough to do what I want to do. And if I'm not, I'll learn how to do it and I'll get back up again and try it again. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's kind of the way I framed my life so far. Mm -hmm. And the the specialty or the expertise that you bring is really this idea of creating space, safe spaces so we can talk about difficult subjects, particularly this idea of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Absolutely. I, I, I don't believe you get flowers to grow by pulling on them. Mm. And so why would I want to make people so uncomfortable that they don't want to talk? And, mm-hmm. you know, I get a lot of that kind of resistance in my work. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells, so I don't want to say anything. And, you know, that makes for a very quiet workspace, but mm-hmm. not a very fruitful one, not mm-hmm. one that people will enjoy. Mm-hmm. So how can we become comfortable with our discomfort? Mm-hmm. How can we understand that, yes, in fact, we will make mistakes. All of us are human and we will make mistakes. And, and how do we keep going with the work despite the fact that we may have said something that hurts or offends someone? Right. I tell people the sun will come up someplace, probably not in Seattle, but someplace <laughs> in the world. The sun will come up even if we hurt or offend, insult, any of that. But if we create a space that says, can we keep talking about this? Mm-hmm. Can we keep moving forward with mm-hmm. it? So that's, and you know, I'll tell you one of the places that I learned the specifics, the strategies for doing that. One of my graduate programs is in spiritual psychology from University of Santa Monica. And that whole program shifted my way of looking at the world, Mm -hmm. releasing judgment. And that's really hard, particularly since I saw myself as a very judgmental person. Right, right. But I think all of us are, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's human. And I I still have, you know, it's like, what on earth was that? That kind of going to a place of judgment. But then what, what I learned at USM was each of us is on a journey mm-hmm. and we are all at different places on that journey. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, you, if I'm at point A and you're at point Q, then your job is to come help me get to Q, mm-hmm. not to judge me for being at A. Mm-hmm. And that can be very difficult, particularly when we're talking about race and racism. Mm-hmm. You know, we, some days there are times I just honestly say, and how on earth did you get to be so clueless? 
judgment, right? That's a judgment. And yet I feel that sometimes. And I have to have a conversation with myself that says, and what can you do to help them get a clue? Mm -hmm. But isn't, you know, it's funny because we happen to be talking about DEI, but isn't that the same thing that every leader, regardless of whether they're thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, there, there are moments when your employees or people or your peers or your boss comes to you and you just kind of look at them and, and smile and, you know, you really ask that question? <laughs> you know, you kind of put that under your breath a little. And you know? try not to give them that look. Right. I, people tell me my face gives me away. So, you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What? Yeah. Did you really say that? Yeah. Um, and yet. I know that people only know what they know. All right. of us, we only know what we know. And so can I stay open as a leader, for example? Can I stay open to know more? Mm-hmm. Can I stay open long enough to know that your story mm-hmm. may in fact be different than my story? Mm-hmm. Whether I have a clue about that. And I'll give an example. Um, LGBTQAI issues, transgender issues. Mm-hmm. I'm a... I'm a, I tell people I'm a small town colored girl from Naples, Texas. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know anything about transgender issues. Nothing. I never, I mean, until I was an adult, I never even heard of the mm-hmm. transgender. Mm-hmm. So when I first heard, I was like, what? So my challenge was how do I stay open to learn what those struggles are, what those stories are, rather than thinking that other people need to have the same orientation that I do. Yeah. And it helped that I had a mother who was very open to people. And I asked her one day, I said, you know, what do you think about gay people? And she said, everybody gets to come here the way they are. We don't get to choose who we are. And everybody gets to be loved regardless. And I was like, oh, so I, I just feel so blessed that I had family who I think were probably the least judgmental people I know. I probably was far more judgmental than they. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I accomplished that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think that was the fact. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so glad that I had people I could rely on to show me how to stay open. So that's my job, mm-hmm. how to help people stay open to other people and their stories and their challenges. Now, I'll tell you, I've been listening to some of the snippets this week from the Judge Katenje Brown-Jackson's hearings. Hearings for the Supreme Court. Yeah. And it's really hard to maintain a non-judgmental stance. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, why is that, though? Well, a question like, can you tell us what a woman is? Mm -hmm. That was one of the senators asked that question. And I'm like, what? You're a senator, you don't know that yet. <laughs> he says, Well, I'm not a biologist, but you know, so I I go right to judgment on something like that. Right. I, I confess that. I, I, when people, you know, challenge, ask a question and don't allow her to answer mm-hmm. because they don't want an answer. They just want to say what they want to say. Mm-hmm. So it's I can have an opinion. I try really hard not to be judgmental of the people who have an opinion contrary to mine, because I say they know what they know, or they know what they think they're supposed to know in order to be elected to public office again. Mm -hmm. There's something in them that does not say that every person who is qualified should sit on the 
Supreme Court. If you have qualifications, regardless of your gender or your race or identity, you, you deserve that. And so I say that to say my struggle with judgment is not over. Yeah. And I have to make a decision between what is what is non-judgment and what is critical thinking? Yeah. And what have you come up with that? What is the difference between non-judgment and critical I, thinking? I think critical thinking is how do I look at something from all sides? Okay. And come up with my thoughts about what that, you know, what I want to conclude about that. Judgment, mm-hmm. however, is that I make a decision about a person's worth based on what they have come up with as their thought. So, you know, as an African-American woman, I have very different perspectives than some of these senators that I've been listening to this week. Yeah. And I can be critical about their thoughts and their Mm -hmm. words and their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I can work really hard not to judge them for. So, you know, some of the questions I want to say, well, that's really stupid. Instead of saying, well, that, um, I wonder where they came up with that question. Why they say that? Why they believe as they do? And Mm -hmm. so that's my struggle, you know, to try to balance that. Uh, And the same is true in organizations. Right. We have leaders who make judgments about other people based on how they look. Mm -hmm. Or where they came from or whether they have a degree. Or their background or their ethnicity or their, you know, whatever bias that person has. Right. So I think that I get to make these, to have these struggles so that I can understand other people who are having those struggles. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're in the, I mean, because these meetings as they start up and with all of us, I mean, it's hard sometimes to know the difference between critical thinking and biased judgment, you know, and I guess in the end, the in the way we know one or the other is really an after fact, isn't it? After you've kind of gone through the mental thoughts and, and decision-making and conversation in your head, that lets you know one way or the other, whether it's judgment, because judgment does come up, right? It does. And so you have to kind of push it away to do the rest of the, to ask what I call the, you know, I tell, when people come to me and they're mad because their boss has done something or an employee's done something and they, they just suddenly say, this is what they were thinking, or this is their motive. And I say, you know, and so what else could be true? That's your perspective. So what else could be true? What could be their perspective? What is it that you're missing? And, you know, sometimes they know, and sometimes they don't. And, and I say, okay, well, if, if, what if something else is true, how would that change your next opinion? Yes. How would that change the actions that you're going to take? Absolutely. And, and then, that's the process. Yes. It's a process. It's just not like I walk into this room with these people who are looking at me like, why are you here? Yeah. And so the process is how do I keep going with them without attributing motive or, you know, and sometimes the motive seems really apparent. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, after I've talked to people, you know, they've they've had some wounds of their own and they yeah. have dealt with that. And yet they are the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to have it all together, mm-hmm. but they don't because they're just as human as the rest of us. Yeah. So re- reminding me, reminding leaders, reminding followers that we're all in a process and we've got to figure out some strategies to keep that moving. So the, 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 the talking, the decision making, the problem solving, the seeing the situation differently can actually occur. Yeah, as we as I sit here and I listen to you speak about this, this concept that I talk about that 
you know, trust, everybody says trust is broken in, you know, one moment, one second, one issue, et cetera. It takes a long time to do it, but we never really stop and pause to say, what will it take to restore trust? Absolutely. How do we restore a relationship? What does it take for you to restore a relationship? And that, you know, we always say, you know, I can, I could say, I forgive you. Right. And, but what I do is I hold on to whatever it was and I watch for you to do it again, which, which, you know, if you look at science and they always say you get what you look for. Right. And so if you're holding out that a person is going to be flawed, guess what you're going to see? All their flaws. But the, but we rarely talk about the process of restoring trust and think through what would it take for you to restore trust and faith in this person to where it was before or to a level that's even higher than where you started? What conversation does that get generated? Yeah, you know, I so I have a, a church school class that I take that I'm a a participant in Mm -hmm. on Sunday mornings. And we have been talking about forgiveness and restoration Mm -hmm. and love. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the language that I can use in an organization, but the Mm -hmm. concept is the same. It's just as you describe it. If someone wounds me in an organization, how do I get up in the morning and look at them? How Mm -hmm. do I go to work and and look at them? Mm -hmm. Particularly if we don't have a space Mm-hmm. Well, we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so people will say, well, he's the boss and he gets to say, no, 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 no. He's a human being. She's mm-hmm. a human being, whatever. We get together and we can create a place to talk about. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be resolved, mm-hmm. but it does mean that we will do our best within a structure right. to talk about what kinds of things go on. So I use one of the structures that I use is called Three Worlds. And it's Mm -hmm. something I learned from one of my mentors, John Shera. And he's like, there are three worlds that go on in any conflict. One is the world, which is the facts. Right. What actually happened. Yep. And there's my world and there's your world. Mm -hmm. And very rarely are those three worlds in alignment. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of a conflict. Mm -hmm. Those three worlds are out of alignment. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is to give people an opportunity. Can we agree on what actually happened? Mm -hmm. What was actually said? Not what I made up about it, Mm -hmm. not what you meant, Mm -hmm. but just what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about, if I'm the speaker, I can talk about what my intent was because that may not have been communicated. Right. And the other person can talk about what the impact was, regardless of what your intent was. Right. Right. And then we can work to try to resolve that. Mm -hmm. Um. Instead, what typically happens is we start storytelling. Yeah. Well, I think that what you meant was, and and I, that was said to me back in what, you know, when I was a kid and then it meant, and that's what you meant. And so all the storytelling starts instead of saying, can I give this person a little grace yep. to tell me what they wish they had said? Right. Because intention is always invisible, right? Absolutely. And, and, and if I can get to what they wish they had said or mm-hmm. what they thought they were saying, then we can have a discussion that says, oh, I thought you meant. Mm-hmm. Well, when I heard that, this is how it felt to me. And now can we can we sort of resolve that? So that's where the forgiveness and restoration starts to take place. Mm-hmm. I had... I have some clients where there are people who were wounded 10 years ago and they're still talking about it. Oh, wow. And I think about what 
what a burden that is to walk around with a 10-year-old wound that you've never even told the person or you told them they apologized, they said they were sorry, and you're still upset. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... I just wish that that all of us could get to the place where we extend the same amount of grace mm-hmm. to another person that we want extended to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I make a mistake, if I hurt someone, I want you to know that I didn't mean that. I want you to forgive me. I want us to restore whatever is broken and I want us to move forward. But right. when you do that, if I'm not willing to extend that same thing to you, then what's that about? Yeah then it can never, I, I can never feel safe with you. That's yeah, one of the problems. I can never, if you don't do it to me, I'm always on pins and needles. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's, it's always interesting because, you know, we're always talking about feedback and giving feedback, et cetera. But yet, it, you know, we have these performance review processes that are built on the gotcha system, right? <laughs> we have to find some reason why one person gets more money than another person. We uh-huh. have to find a reason why you need to develop when maybe the right thing is, you know, staying right where you are, doing more of what you're doing, doing it for somebody else. All of these reasons to differentiate somebody's on top and someone's on the bottom, which inherently, even if you're trying to say it in the best ways, inherently feels like I'm losing if I'm not the person at the top. And, and I, I'm always competing, you know, look to your left, look to your right. That's your true competition, right? Yeah. And, and performance management systems are probably some of the worst perpetrators of unsafe spaces. Mm-hmm. First of all, in so many organizations where I've worked, they, these, these evaluations mm-hmm. happen once a year. Yeah. So you think you're doing fine for 12 months and then... Christmas Eve, you get an evaluation that says, oh, well, you weren't doing too well. And yeah. you're like, oh, could you not have told me that last January? That's exactly right. Can't so, tell you how many times I had that in January. And oh, and what, what you've done, what the person, yes, they're in there mad and they're flaming and the boss's opinion is wrong and all this other stuff. But when you dig up under that, what's, what's broken is trust. Absolutely. I trusted you to help guide me and you blindsided me. Now, what leader, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about you, but every leader I say, the one thing they hate is lack of transparency. When people don't tell them the truth. And yet we create systems that cause people not to tell the truth when it's time, when it at a time when they can actually do something about it. Yeah, I I I get when you say that, I'm thinking of once I was serving on a commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, public entity and we were giving some feedback to the executive director and so we gave this feedback and there was a committee that was supposed to get back to her and monitor and all that and then nine months later they were like well she hasn't done what we told her to do so I think we should fire her and I'm like whoa 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 what kind of feedback have you given her in the last nine months Mm-hmm. Well, we told her what we want. Yes, but did you monitor? Did you coach? Did you mm-hmm. encourage? Did you look back to say, now this could be done a little differently? And none of that had been done. Yeah. And I said, well, I will not sign off on firing her. Mm-hmm. I think that we are doing her a disservice because we have not given her that feedback. Yeah. So wonderfully, they they agreed with me and started giving the feedback. And she she was a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. But she just needed to know what people wanted from her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were unclear about that. She thought she was doing her best. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah. So it's how do we coach? Yeah. Coach people to be their best selves. Yeah. Rather yeah. than wait to play gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I want to shift a little bit. You know, you've had the opportunity, you know, over time to see the change in how we think about diversity and equity inclusion, you know, and from one form of training to another form of training. You know, right now over the fat, you know, past few decades, we haven't done it. We haven't gotten as far as we want. And there's conversations now about diversity fatigue and people are tired of it. And, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others have happened. And now we've got this renewed interest on it. And I think I think larger companies who have been on this road for a while are making better progress than other companies are making. So I'm not going to say all things aren't there, but, you know, in some ways, when I look at, I look at things and I listen to, you know, those confidential clients who can't say things in public, it almost sometimes feels like we're in a trendy mode that DEI is there and, you know, everybody wants to hire a consultant and everybody's getting into this business of being a DEI consultant kind of thing. From your perspective, how has it kind of shifted? And, you know, the last piece, if you can add in there is if I'm a company who, you know, is taking baby steps in this area or maybe even trying to get to the next level, how would I know I have a good consultant? Oh, wow. So this this conversation is going to go on for another three hours, is it? <laughs> no. Uh, so let's see where we start. This is my, one of my favorite topics. So when I first started this work, I was at the University of Washington, as I said, as director of training and development, and we did work in diversity. Right. And then when I started my consulting practice, this was 1988, I, I didn't want to do work in diversity because I didn't want to be pigeonholed, mm-hmm. you know, like as the black lady and she can only talk about black people. Mm-hmm. And, but I stayed open to what, what I thought I was, you know, was going to present itself and a lot of work in diversity showed up. Mm-hmm. I have changed. I'll tell you how I have evolved over the years. Okay. I no longer do emphasis on diversity. I do Mm -hmm. racial equity Mm -hmm. with the backdrop being diversity, diversity with, and then we're going to talk about race. Do you you see the difference that I make in it is what is our emphasis? Mm -hmm. I think the most difficult discussion is race and racism. Mm -hmm. We can figure that out as we figure out the others, but the emphasis is on race and racism. And I'm very clear with my clients about that. Well, what's the difference between equity and racism? I mean, well, why why, and why go in one area, not in the other? Because, I mean, they're all going to blend together or impact, isn't it? So so I'm not making the difference between equity and racism. I'm making Mm -hmm. the difference between diversity and racism. Okay. So diversity is all the ways that people are different. So it could be gender, it could be sexual orientation, it could be disability, it could uh, any of those are, are. And so I use the iceberg model that most people use, which is how are we visibly different, the mm-hmm. tip of the iceberg, and how are we invisibly different. And so all of that is diversity. But my emphasis now is on racial equity mm-hmm. because it's it's a difficult topic. It's the most difficult topic, I believe, for people to have, a uh, discussion for people to have. And I'll give you an example. Affirmative action was supposed to be about everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone who was in a dis- dis- group that received disparate treatment was supposed to be included. 
But who benefited from primarily from affirmative action was white women. Mm-hmm. At least that's what the numbers all say that's over and over. Say. And, and that's that's my experience. Mm-hmm. So, it, well, we didn't. Really, so I'm I'm speaking like I'm a, a, a corporation. I'll mm-hmm. say. We we didn't really want to hire white women, but we're more comfortable with them than we are with black women or black men. Mm-hmm. So we'll hire white women and we'll call it affirmative action and we'll count them. Mm-hmm. And then we'll say we did it. So that's the experience that I've had with the way organizations have dealt with diversity in the past. From a box perspective. So they that's focus right. on, on whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then Calicable. they. Right. And in that case, it was white women. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. We were being hosed. Dogs attacking us. That, you know, all that history. Well, maybe you're not as qualified. Well, wait a minute. I met some people that you thought were qualified. (laughs) And uh, a lot of times people of color are the ones training those more qualified white males. Yeah. You don't have that discussion. Then people will go through their whole career thinking that they've done diversity, done Mm -hmm. diversity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, where are the groups that we have typically omitted? We have when they come, they don't stay because we don't create a safe space for them. Mm-hmm. We don't look at our policies, our practices, mm-hmm. our procedures that inadvertently, perhaps, but still exclude people, yeah. whether we did it to or not. Now, you know, there's a discussion about whether it was intentional or not. Doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not. The impact was it, it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I say let's start with the hardest part first as we bring others other discussions along. Mm-hmm. So and that hard part that, being the equity part. The hard part being the racial equity. And mm-hmm. it's not that I exclude any anyone else, but right. my emphasis, the way I structure the work that I do in organizations is we look at racial equity first. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one other place that, that there is a, where people have been excluded is indigenous people. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we think they don't exist. Yeah. And, and their so, numbers are so small that, you know, we'll, how would I even find them? You know, that conversation. That conversation. And in the Northwest where I am, there are indigenous people, but there are not many in the organizations. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just as there are not very many, I'll say, African-Americans in the sciences, in the math, you know, in medicine. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Is mm-hmm. it that we don't do science? No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's look at, so I work with cancer organizations and they do research and and they're saying well we can't find any and if and lawyers mm-hmm. we can't find one you know it's usually one that they're looking for mm-hmm. <laughs> yep 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 we can't find one uh and if we could find one everybody wants that one right because their name is the one that's around it, they make so much money working for somebody else i'm like well you you're doing all right and you're working here what makes you think so it's how do we have those conversations so that people don't make excuses right. for excluding black and brown people? Yeah. So I'm I'm a company. How do I how do I select a consultant? Yeah. Well, you get somebody who and I and I know this is going to sound awful, but I'm just going to put it out there. You get someone who's actually had some experience mm-hmm. in doing this kind of work. Right. And you ask them what's their, not just their approach, but their beliefs around racial equity. Mm-hmm. What's their foundation? Mm-hmm. What kind of work have they done on themselves yeah. to better understand how to approach this work? 
you know, since all of the, I, I say people, Black people had to die before we figured out that that was real racism. You mm-hmm. know, George Floyd had to have a knee on his neck before people went, oh, is that really happening to you people? Even though we've been saying it's happening for 400 years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you, you see that and you think, well, how do people not know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been happening to yeah. us. They don't know, to be honest. They mm-hmm. really don't. And one of the shifts, this you asked, the, how, how, how do I see this evolving? When I grew up, we were going to deal with this. We were going to talk about it. We were going to put it in, out there for discussion. These young black and brown people are like, read a book. Mm-hmm. Go to a movie. Don't go to some, some, as they put it, some woke white people and talk mm-hmm. about talk to you i'm not talking to you about it i'm tired and and my first reaction to that was how do you get tired mm-hmm. you, you're 30 years old what do you mean <laughs> <you're tired? laughs> i was just i'm like you 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 you're tired yeah don't you know that we are fighting for our our survival and yeah. you are tired and you are 30 years old so i was just indignant right uh-huh. and one young friend of mine her father was one of the first black judges in Seattle. Okay. And uh, he just died last year and, and an amazing man. And he went to his work as a municipal court judge and on his parking, you know, the sign. Yeah. Park, yeah. Somebody had written the N word. He's at work. He's a judge. Right. And he gets it. And so I said to his daughter, now you go home and talk to your daddy and then tell me you're tired. I said, right. now he's tired. I don't know what you are, but it's not time. <laughs> I had to work with that because I'm like all in. Yeah. You know, it's my life. It's my work. It's my volunteerism. It's like I'm all in. Right. And I couldn't understand why, where she was coming from until I was talking to my son. And he said, Mom, your generation fought the good fight. You're doing the work. But we see it differently. We are not willing to sacrifice ourselves the way your generation was willing to sacrifice yourselves. Mm. He said, you, you didn't get rest. Even when you were supposed to be resting, you were thinking about how can you change somebody's position or disposition or beliefs. And, and then it started to make sense to me mm-hmm. that you know, we could sacrifice ourselves, but these kids are like, they're not kids, but these young adults are like, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight some other kind of way, but I'm not coming here trying to convince white people that black and brown people matter. I'm mm-hmm. not doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting that. That's one way I, I, I think it's changed. And you asked the question about how do organizations know when they have a good consultant? Right. What is the consultant willing to promise you? Yeah. So if they promise you that they're going to do some training, they'll dip and bless your people. Excuse my roosters. I'm in Mexico. <laughs> I know. I know we have to sell people. <laughs> so, oh, he's having a good time today. <laughs> so if if someone promises you that they can do some training or if you ask them if they can do 30 minutes of training or three hours of training, and then that's going to be the contract. You need to run <laughs> because you cannot change systems in a three hour training session. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to happen. And what we need to do is look at what are your policies, right? What are your practices, right. what are your procedures? 
how is your system built? Right. Because your system is functioning just as it should, which is to exclude people. Right, right. Just it, as it was a design. Not from intention either. It was no, just, no, it, it just was built for a time when that was the prevailing exactly. thought. And now exactly. there's a new prevailing thought. It's no different. And, you know, we Absolutely. used to have flip phones and we didn't have flip phones. Now we back to flip phones again. Uh, yeah, All yeah. of those phones were good. They, they were built to do exactly what we, they what were they, meant to. That's right. We need to look at the systemic way in which we create cultures, those boundaries and rules and what's right and what's not right. So that, you know, is it giving it? Yeah. Is that, you know, how is that holding us in a steady state instead of helping us to evolve to the next level? Absolutely. And and a consultant who can help you look at that. Yeah is someone you want. And I'll give an example. There was an organization I was working with and for entry-level positions, I mean like minimum wage positions, they were interviewing people from eight to five. Mm -hmm. So that sounds reasonable. I mean, our office is open from eight to five. How could that have a disparate impact on any group? Well, if you're already making your little, this is before Seattle put in $15 an hour, which is still not a living wage in Seattle, but that's another discussion. So people making $7 an hour, they have to leave a $7 an hour job to go interview for a $7.50 an hour job Mm -hmm. that they may or may not get. Mm -hmm. So changing that would be, well, why don't we interview people at night? Mm -hmm. You know, we can do weekend week or on the weekend so that they wouldn't have to leave their minimum wage job to come and try to improve themselves just slightly. Yeah. Because it costs them more money to be interviewed. And they may not get the job. And they may not get the job. Yeah. So people, you know, they were like, oh, I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't make them bad people. It just Mm -hmm. meant they hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perspective. Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of policies that we have in place. Like I I worked with a theater. So who is doing the casting? Yeah. Do we have a variety of people who are on that casting committee? Mm -hmm. So there's just so many different ways in which, you know, it permeates. And if we can just step back, ask the question to move forward, I think that we will begin to break it up. I'm, you know, again, (laughs) we have talked through the time with the... (laughs) with the podcast and as you said in the middle of it is it, it oh this is a three-hour conversation three. <laughs> at least at least but that's also because i am enjoying talking to you so you know, we have to allow for that thank you how can people get a hold of you yeah so i have an email address and a website so okay diversitycollaborative.com diversity. okay collaborative.com. And my email is B as in boy, D as in David, A as in apple, and the number six at AOL.com. So it's BDA, that's Bram Donahue Associates. And I have six children at AOL.com, BDA6. Oh, okay. (laughs) So again, represent all all the facets of your life. (laughs) You have to include everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. This is just the beginning. We're going to have to talk about coming back just so we can finish this conversation. I love it. But everybody, you know the story that I'm going to tell you now. If you like it, please share it. If you don't, please share it because I guarantee you it will be a conversation that helps you close the gap. And with that, I hope that if you, you know, you'll follow me and you will share it 
as well as join me again next week when I have another guest who is here to help you bring insight into your workplace, into your career, and into your life. And with that, see ya. Thank you. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.